The scripture reading today is from Jeremiah chapter 29. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask that you would now Help us, assist us, support us. For so many of us here in this room, we feel like exiles. For any of us here who doesn't feel like they belong, for anyone here who feels like they are completely out of touch from what, what might be called home, help us to learn like these Israelites had to learn that your presence is with us everywhere and your presence is with us here now. And so help us to be present to that presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Homesickness is rough. I don't know if you remember the first time you were homesick. Maybe it was like me as a freshman in college, 840 miles away from my hometown. It was rough. Some of you are parents right now of kids who are in college and maybe you're having to do a little bit of counseling on the phone because the kid is like me when I was a freshman calling home homesick. I remember being homesick whenever I left Jackson, Mississippi as a youth pastor. I had this large youth ministry and loved it. And, and people wanted me to stay, but I knew I was, had to go to Knoxville to start this new thing. And I can remember being in Knoxville, sitting in my office, and just crying like a baby. It's like, man, you had it made there. You had a group. You had people who loved you. Now you have nothing. You got one name of one kid from Macon, Georgia. 
And uh, this is pretty much what I had when I moved to Knoxville. And, um, and then the same thing happened here, you know. Things went great in Knoxville, and then we moved here to start the church in 1996. And uh, I could remember sitting there and the same experience. It was like, wow, you had people who you knew, you loved your community in Knoxville, and now you're here, and everybody thinks you're trying to start a cult, and you're looked at like you're nuts, and you have three names from people, and oh my gosh. But you know, those are normally what a lot of people experience. Those are kind of less traumatic experiences of being homesick. But it's when people are forced out of their homes, out of their countries, that the trauma cuts deepest. I'll never forget, because my... I don't have to address the refugee crisis right now and people that are walking from Guatemala to Tijuana to try to get into America and all of those, that kind of trauma. I have it. It's actually a part of my own family system. My wife is born in Havana, Cuba. She came over when she was five years old with her little brother and little sister and her mom and dad escaping Castro's Cuba and the last legal flight to come to America. And... Um, I have numerous experiences and conversations of seeing what the trauma of that was like for them, coming to America, not knowing a word of English, having to reboot their entire lives. And, um, but one of the times that I remember the deepest is uh, my wife and I had discovered uh, the Buena Vista Social Club. And you know that came out as both like an album and a CD, but also came out as a, as a video. And this was back in VHS tape days. And we bought the video for them as, I think, a Christmas present or something. And, and I can remember when we pushed it into the tape player and it started running on the television, they, they knew every single song and sang them as tears came down their face. And I remember thinking at that moment, this is the trauma that they have been through, the trauma. This is a traumatized group of people that Jeremiah is addressing in this passage that was just read. And their trauma has been that they have been deported. They have been deported 900 to 1,000 miles away from their home. They are thinking thoughts like, it is over for us. Every promise of God that we had relied on is done. The Davidic monarchy that we hope to see come back in its glory is over. We're lost. We have no idea how to live here. How long will we be here? How do we worship here without a temple? What in the world are we doing in this place? How are we going to survive and live as exiles? Now, this is traditionally used as, as a great paradigm for us to ask the question about ourselves living in cities. It's not a one-to-one kind of relationship, so I know it's a little strained. But I think what, what Jeremiah has to say to these exiles is what Jeremiah has to say and what Jesus has to say to a community of Jesus followers who are living in cities as well. And so we have a word from Jeremiah, and we're going to also pivot to a word from Jesus on this as well. Now let's talk about Jeremiah for just a second, his background. What you need to know about Jeremiah is he's basically up to this point a failed prophet. 
a failed prophet. Jeremiah had been imprisoned. He had been beaten. He had been thrown in a cistern. He, had, he, he was not a popular person trying to be a prophet before the Babylonian captivity. He was roundly criticized. He was not listened to. And his message was pretty simple. You, Israel, have forgotten the priorities of God. The priorities of God to be a, a people who are for the marginalized, for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow. You have forgotten your calling. You have left what God cares about. And this did not go over well. I would imagine maybe Jeremiah, as he was abused, was told things like, you know, don't be too political in the pulpit, Jeremiah. Don't disrupt the status quo. We don't want to hear it. And now, he was reminding Israel of God's priorities again, but he was, he was also reminding them that God would be with them. He has a hard word for them. There were other prophets, you saw that in the reading, that were saying things like, this is going to be lickety-split. We'll be out of here in no time. This is going to be short. But Jeremiah had a different message, one that they didn't want to hear again. Seems like the prophets are always saying that one thing that nobody wants to hear. And Jeremiah says to them, it's going to be a while. This is not going to be quick. You're going to be here a while, for generations even. It's going to be a while. Babylon has a plan for you. And it's not for you to leave early or to leave quickly. But Babylon has a plan for you, but God will also have a plan for you as well. And so, basically, from Jeremiah, we learn, what do we do? What do we do? And what Jeremiah's basic answer is, is very simple. Seek the flourishing of everyone. Seek the flourishing of everyone right there where you are in exile. And there's a couple of ditches that have to be uh, avoided. And the first ditch is assimilation because the Babylonians were smart. They weren't just interested in crushing you or enslaving you. I think they learned enough to know that when you enslave a people, they tend to come back and not be happy about this very much. And so they said, you know what? We're just going to make you really good Babylonians. It's the ditch of assimilation. Learn our culture, learn how we think, learn our religion. And one day you will be great Babylonians among us. That's the first ditch that has to be avoided. The second ditch is the ditch of tribalism. And the ditch of tribalism is to say, you know what? We will never be like these people. They are not God's chosen people. They are them and we are us. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to mine the gold I can mine out of this, but I don't like it and I'm not going to ever like it. I could tell you something. As a pastor for 23 years in this city, I could tell you I've known many people who use this city to make their millions and they secretly disdain it. They hate it. That happens in this city quite a bit. It's an us versus them mentality. And God says no to both ditches. No to both of those. They're based on pride. They're based on fear. They're based on ego. No. There's a different way of going about this altogether. So before I get into that, what, what ditch have you fallen into? 
Do you feel, or to what degree do you feel assimilated by the city? Or do you feel tribalistic about the city? In what ways, it's, sometimes it doesn't just come out as an us versus them thing. It comes out just as a, a deepening cynicism. Now, I know I have that. I'll just speak for me. How is this ever going to get better? How, is this, how are we going to make progress on the issue of homelessness in this city? How are we ever going to make progress on housing inequality? How are we going to make progress where everyone has enough? What ditch have you fallen into? Because this is what God calls us to do. God calls us not to be us versus them, but us for them. God loves the city. That is a primary core value of this church, that God is for the city and not against it, and that we are a church for the city. You know, we had little things we said in our earliest days, like we want to be a church that is so for the city and so seeking the city's good and well-being that if we disappeared, they'd have to raise the taxes because of all the good that we were trying to do in the city. When I ask a person, what do you think God wants for this city? I would ask this a lot in the early days in particular. They'd say, you know, I want, I want everyone to have enough. I want equality. I want, I want poverty to be no more. I want people to have a roof over their head. And they'd just listen. I would just sit there and listen and say, you know what you want? You want the same thing God wants for this city. And so, what is the practical advice of Jeremiah? Well, you can read about it there, verses 5 to 7, um, printed for you in your worship folder. He says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage. I know, our patriarchal culture, just, just acknowledging that. That they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And, and here's the big one, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Wow. You realize what, what he is saying here? First of all, this is the power of the mundane. Do these non-spectacular but transformative things in this community, in this city. Root yourself in it. Be for it. Raise families in it. Don't necessarily have to lose your identity, but you keep it in ways that serve the common good. Identify with the city's welfare. Identify with the city's pain and brokenness. Be in the midst of that and seek to bring healing and whole, wholeness and shalom. Be shalom seekers, in a sense, is what God is telling them through the prophet Jeremiah. Works for his peace. Here's the thing. The last thing. Pray. Do you realize that, think about that for just a minute. Jeremiah is telling them, pray for your enemies. These are people that had had destroyed their homeland, had deported them a thousand miles, had ruined their dreams. They were all impoverished, now living in a little ghetto, Tel Aviv, in what is now Iraq. 
And Jeremiah says, pray for your enemies. Pray for the enemies who had conquered them. Think about this. You know, I, I, I talk about how when we read the Old Testament in a smart way, in my opinion, and well, it actually was taught, is it's not a flat text. It is Israel coming to know their God. Okay? And here we have Jeremiah with a higher level of consciousness. He's not saying, destroy them, fight back. It's almost like the Old Testament has these little clicks where it clicks one more to a little bit higher level of thinking, a little bit higher level of thinking. And here he says, Jeremiah, who I believe through the crucible of persecution and suffering that he's been through in his entire life. I mean, he was, he was so disdained that the Babylonians didn't even consider him worthy to be deported. <laughs> he was still in Israel. And he says to them, pray for your enemies. Why? I'm going to give you a really sophisticated answer to why he says to pray for your enemies, to pray for the Babylonians. Here's the sophisticated answer. Are you ready? Because God loves the Babylonians too. That's why. Can you see what's going on with Jeremiah? You see, God, God is not just the God of, of us. There's an expansiveness to the way he's understanding who and how God loves. It's taking place right there in the text. Prefiguring Jesus, who in the Sermon on the Mount said the same thing. I don't know if you saw this this week, but going around on Facebook was, um, and Twitter and such was uh, the story of Fan T. Kim Fu. If you don't recognize that name, it's the it's the little girl who, in 1972, uh, in the horrors of the Vietnam War, her village was napalmed, and, and she's running down the street naked. It's a very iconic, horrific, in many ways, photo. And she was recently interviewed at NPR by Judy Woodruff. And she said this, I remember June 8, 1972. I saw the airplane, and it's so loud, so close to me. Suddenly, the fire everywhere around me. The fire burned off my clothes, and I saw my arm got burned with the fire. I thought, oh my goodness, I get burned. People will see me different way. Nine years old, I became the victim of war. I didn't like that picture at all. I felt like, why he took my picture when I was agony, naked, so ugly? I wish that picture wasn't taken. I went through 17 operations. I had to deal with the pain every single day. I used to compare my scars with buffalo skin. And because my sin wasn't having have any pores, I cannot sweat, make me feel so tired, so headache. It built me up with hatred, bitterness, and anger. I just living with the question, why me? Why that happened to me? In 1982, I wanted to take my life because I thought after I die, no more suffer, no more pain. Eventually, I found the New Testament in the library in Saigon. In Christmas 1982, I became a Christian. That faith had helped me a lot. Since I have my faith, my enemies list, are you ready for this? Since I have my faith, my enemies list became my prayer list. I realized myself, wow, Kim, you pray for your enemies? This means you love. Forgiveness set my heart free. 
I forgive everyone who caused my suffering, even the pilot, commander, people controlling me. When I became mother, I have full time to take care of my baby. I just slowly, slowly to tell him why mommy has a scar. I have to show him my picture. He touched my arm, and he said, Mom hurt. And he kissed here. He kissed me right here. My work with the children who has trauma like me, I know how they have pain. And not only the pain with physical, but nightmare and traumatized. Most of them, they just ask me, why are you naked? Why are you crying? And I said, yes, because the bomb dropped and I got burned. I also show them my scar on my back. And they say, oh, it's so painful. I don't want that you suffer that much. And they love me and they kiss my scar. All my journey... I help children, building school, building hospital, orphanage home. It's about relationship. Now I'm working, not because of my duty, not because of my mission, but because of my love. Jeremiah tells them, God has a plan for your future still. God has a plan for your future still. And part of what happened for these Israelites in exile is it is in this captivity that much of the Hebrew Scriptures were actually finally formed. It was in this captivity that they learned that the presence of, God, presence of God is not just in a temple. They had no temple, but that they could worship God anywhere. This is where the synagogues began to appear for the first time. As Jeremiah leads them to a, what we might say now, a more Jesus-y level of consciousness. Now let's turn to Jesus for just a second. Because it's one thing to say, what do we do? What kind of community, what kind of things is our, should our community be doing in this city? It's another thing to say, how do we do it? How do we do it? And I think it's by following Jesus' way of love. Jesus said that his community in the Sermon on the Mount should be a light to the world like a city hidden on a hill. Like a city hidden on a hill. A light, a city that can't be hidden. Now think about this for just a minute. Like a city on a hill. Simply means to be a light to all. Think about, think about these immigrants, these migrants who right now are traversing from Guatemala and El Salvador, the most violent country in the, in the world right now, and they're making their way north. Not because they want to, but because they have to. Think about the in-between spaces of the wilderness that they're in, where nothing's on the horizon. And think about what comes over them when they see a city. I can be fed there. I can get water there. I can get help there. I can just have to make it there, and then I make it to the next one. To people who are pilgrims, to people who are traveling on the wilderness trail, a city that can't be hidden, a city that's seen, is the sweetest possible sight imaginable. Jesus says, that's what my community needs to be. 
That's what my community needs to be for every one of us who are pilgrims in our journey, looking for refuge, looking for safety, looking for acceptance, looking for love, looking for welcome, looking for help and support, looking for community, looking for a place to belong. A community that takes seriously the challenge of living under the reign of Jesus will always advocate a politics of love, not a politics of power. A community that takes seriously the reign of Jesus will persuade by love and witness and spirit and reason and rhetoric and even martyrdom if have to, if necessary. The world will be changed by non-coercive love or not at all. We are to be that part of the world changed by Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this in his Sermon on the Mount. I want to read you some things I've written and added to from someone else. It, it just kind of highlights the kind of freedom that Jesus invites us into as a community based on the Sermon on the Mount. By looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us in this way, being peaceable and not angry to free us from our anger, to not treat people as sexual objects to free us from our lust, from not deceiving people with clever words to free us from our ego, to living a life of nonviolence, freeing us from our violence and impatience, to loving your enemies, freeing you from your resentments. Giving to the poor to free you from your disdainment. Praying and feasting with sincerity to free you from your hypocrisy. To trust God instead of trusting money to free you from your love of money. Not judging other people to free you from judgment. Treating people as we want to be treated to free you to love. See, this is all in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, here are my values. Here are my core values. Here's the way of being I've called you into this world. Do this, and you will preserve, be salt, and illuminate, be light, and be a city on a hill. My kingdom will come on earth as is in heaven as we are this community. This is the invitation. What does it mean to be a community in the city? To be a city on a hill for the rest of the city. This is what Jesus invites us into. This life of freedom that seeks the common good of everyone. Tomorrow we will remember Martin Luther King Jr., I invite you to do what I try to do every single year is read a letter from a Birmingham jail or whatever other ways you want to enter into the, the prophetic imagination of this person. But here's something he said in the sermon. I think it serves us well as King was so driven by what he learned in the Sermon on the Mount. It helped shape everything he was about as a leader in the civil rights era. He said, we must discover the power of love, 
the power, the redemptive power of love. There's a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came in this world. But never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no, it is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. And We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. This is a different way of being in the world. And it's the invitation Jesus calls us to. And so what I want to do is something together, is to pray together. And we've done this before, but to end this sermon by the, using the prayer attributed to St. Francis. So it's going to appear up here on the back and let's pray this together now. Together. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.